want to welcome everybody to this New Mexico in Focus podcast. This is for the show that will air on Friday, October 25th. I am Kevin McDonald, the executive producer for New Mexico in Focus, joined by host Gene Grant, a voice you're probably very familiar with. Hello there. <laughs> and we just wanted to uh, let you know, first of all, why we started the podcast. We've done this for a few weeks now, and we just feel like the way the world is now, that it's great to be able to take this show with you wherever you go. And so whether you can listen in the car, on a run, at the gym, at work, on lunch, whatever, we want to uh, go with you, travel with you, so to speak. Uh, but we also want to take some time to let you know what's in the show this week. Uh, so if you don't have time to digest the full hour, you can find that little bit of it you want. So, um, Gene, you want to talk a little bit about what's on the line this week? Well, let's start with the panel. It was actually a really interesting all-female panel. We had Kathy McGill, who has been with us a couple of times, and she's actually quite wonderful. Martha Burke, she's an author, of course. Uh, our, I forgot the name of her book, but she's got a new version coming out before the election, so we'll talk about that uh, maybe a little bit later. Also, former Senator Diane Snyder was with us, and one of our regular Sophie Martin, so an all-female uh, crew with us, and that was very interesting. We started off with our first subject is the idea from the administration of uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham to replace the park test, which she promised to do as part of one of her campaign promises. Now we're going SAT. And one of the uh, many, many angles we talked about is, okay, this sounds interesting. What's the reason behind it? Did we do this too quickly? Was this, in fact, vetted through a lot of folks, clearly enough? And it turns out they had a panel of about 40 uh, educators kind of working on this, and this is the idea they came up with. We have a new education secretary, certainly, and that person needs to have their own signature on things educationally. I thought it was a really good discussion. I really it was. Did. There was something about it that really lit me up. Yeah, Yeah, and it's it's an interesting time in this in general. I mean, as it was pointed out at the table, I think there's 20-some-odd states that That's already right. use the SAT for That's high right. school evaluation, mm-hmm. uh, and so it makes some sense in that way. It also appears we're at a time where the SAT and the ACT, the two primary tests right. for college admission, are a bit of a a bidding war with each other. So, for instance, the ACT now, once you've taken the full test, you can actually go back and take just the math portion or just the English portion and try to boost that up. So how that plays into all this, as well as uh, we really didn't even have time there to talk about the fact that the state's still got to figure out what to do with evaluating um, third through eighth Mm, grade, because this is really obviously just for the high school evaluation. Mm -hmm. And I thought some great points out there, Kathy McGill specifically talking about maybe we need to take a step back. Right. You can pick a thousand different metrics to evaluate, That's right. but where are we starting with, with the question of what is it we're trying to evaluate? Mm-hmm. That should lead to the evaluation tool you then want to use. I That's thought right. that was a really interesting point. That was a great point. You know, yeah. the idea, of course, as well, that the state's going to pay for this test, for the SAT. That's actually an interesting idea. They want to eliminate as many barriers to higher education as are out there. One of the things you and I talked about offline was with the ACT, who does that benefit if you can go back and for 70 bucks, 80 bucks, whatever it's going to cost, retake math or whatever the portion is you felt like you didn't do well on, who does that naturally, you know, work well for it? Obviously it's parents that have, or the individual has enough money to be able to do that. And that's a difficulty. That creates a problem in our state with our particular needs on income sure. and, and, and where we are. UNM, I know, and I believe New Mexico State will both take either the SAT or ACT. So, yeah, if you're going to get a better score on the ACT because you have the money and the ability to retake it um, in-state, out-of-state, a lot of universities across the country now are going to that either or. Some even moving away from those all together. So it's going to be interesting moving forward to see there. Also then next on the line was another really interesting and timely higher ed-related conversation, which was about the vote last week at UNM right. for both uh, full-time faculty and adjunct faculty. Both had separate votes for separate collective bargaining units and both approved unionization. Right. Uh, and that's just sort of the latest example of uh, union effects across the, the country and votes. And as we, we right. deemed it, is union, are unions having a moment? That's right. That's um, right. I love the getting into it with that angle. Yeah. That was interesting. And it also set up an interesting dynamic between Martha Burke and Senator uh, Diane uh, Snyder. Snyder, right? sorry about that. Um, where there's an interesting difference of opinion there about unionization. Yes. Martha is very pro-union, as you might imagine. She really feels like unionization is, is really kind of an answer for a lot of things that ill, you know, 
we're not getting ahead on here in right. New Mexico, and unionization would actually help that. There's benefits, there's retirement, there's, you know... Pay equity. Pay, pay equity. All those things mean yeah. something. For sure. And the idea out there that there are studies that show where there's strong unionization, it lifts all votes wage-wise across other non-union jobs. A little early for that here in, in Albuquerque, yeah. but we'll see what happens. So the, one of the interesting questions we threw on the table for the guys was, how do we kind of assess this? Does this mean something? Is this a first domino to fall and perhaps later big entities following suit, having union votes? We'll see what happens. We have a long way to go here. Now comes the negotiations. Well, that's the other part, right? Devil <laughs> right. in the details, as that's they right. say. Uh, and also, I think Sophie brought it up, but it'll be interesting because in higher ed, there's already a difference between adjunct faculty and right. faculty by the very nature. But what that does to relationships within a university system, and is this going right. to exacerbate right. chasms that might be there, bring together, who knows? It's going to be really interesting to see. Um, we didn't have a chance in the show to say it too, but... Uh, New Mexico State's also talked about this for years. Mm -hmm. Central New Mexico Community College, the biggest community college in the state, has been unionized for a while. That's right. So, um, yeah, but it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes with the with the collective bargaining agreements and how it all gets set up. That's right. One of the interesting things that, that Sophie mentioned is since UNM has such a wide footprint, we're also talking grants, Gallup, all kinds of places. Yes. These folks will be unionized as well. Right. So you're not you're talking about areas of the state that do not have hardly any outside of public sector employees, any unionized sort of a footprint. So we'll kind of see what yeah. what plays there. It's kind of interesting. Sure. Yeah. And then we we sort of ended with a, a bread and butter segment for for the line, a political segment. Right. Uh, we're year out from these elections, but there's a lot of interesting things going on uh, legislative race wise. Right. For a year from now, specifically around the announcement recently of four Democratic lawmakers who aren't going to run, and also some pretty prominent, especially in the Senate, what we call blue dog Democrats, conservative Democrats who are being primaried next year. And is that part of a bigger movement, or what does that all mean? So right. some really interesting discussion there, particularly around pay attention to Martha Burke in that segment, right. too, <laughs> because she did a great job of relaying what's what a lot of people think has led to a lot of this with the primarying of the Blue Dog Democrats, which was a vote over an antiquated abortion law that uh, um, progressives especially wanted tidied up last year. Mm -hmm. um, it's not legal under federal uh, law, and they just wanted it taken off the books in case Roe versus Wade is ever reversed. Right. And the feeling was that there were some of these Blue Dog Democrats who said they were going to vote for this, and in the right. end, didn't and it didn't pass. Yeah, it's interesting. In, in folks are naming names, by the way. We're talking about Clemente Sanchez. We're yeah. talking about John Arthur Smith. We're talking about Mary Kay Papin. These are yeah. big names. Yeah. In on that side of the aisle, it's just right. a huge deal. So to primary them, you know. And there's starting to be some campaign finance reports that show specific, specifically in, in Mary Kay Papin's case, right. that her primary challengers actually outraised her. So That's right. Now when you're incumbent, that doesn't always necessarily right. matter that much. That's so right. We'll definitely see. But so a lot of great stuff to listen mm -hmm. for on the line. Wedged in the middle of all that, um, in between the unionization and the SAT versus Park, uh, is a really fascinating discussion, especially for Albuquerque voters around this idea of democracy dollars, which is a proposal for a new evolution of public financing of campaign candidates or candidates in Albuquerque where folks who... Um, who want to be involved, and, and it'll be decided who's eligible for this. But if you're eligible, you get a $25 voucher that you can submit to a candidate uh, of your choosing. And that's going to be on the ballot here in just a few weeks in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. So that one's coming up pretty quick, uh, and it's an interesting debate on both sides. So Eric Riego, who's yep. no stranger to the table, uh, is uh, in support of this as part of his work with the Working Families Party. And then Pat Rogers is a prominent um, Republican attorney and a, a former constituent, not a constituent, what, what's the word I'm looking for? He was a delegate, mm -hmm. a New Mexico delegate, That's right? right. Uh, That's and right. so he's talking on the other side of the equation, which you'll see a lot from the Rio Grande Foundation there on the other side. Of I'm that interested area. to see it. I didn't yeah. see the discussion. I'm interested in real time on Friday night to watch this. This will be fun. Yeah, well, it's a fascinating debate around, obviously, the law we're living in right now yeah. via the Supreme Court is that money is free speech. Mm -hmm. And so we know uh, what the complaints about that are, and so this is an attempt to balance that out. Uh, Seattle has, we should mention, uh, Seattle has already done this. This will be the second go-around coming up for them. But you can't even really compare apples to apples there. They had no public financing 
before they did democracy dollars, they've actually got four different vouchers you can get, so it's not quite the same. Sure. Um, but uh, we're trying to, the supporters are trying to be on the leading edge of a, a movement here to balance those, right. uh, the cash out in elections. I'm, so. glad, I'm glad we took it on, though. I'm glad yeah. we're going to be able to show the public there's some interesting differences here between them. There's going to be things to think about. Everything sounds simple on paper. Right. But, you know, once the nitty-gritty starts, it's different. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of great stuff in this podcast. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you do, be sure to tell other people. You can find this on Spotify, iTunes, a bunch of other locations as well as we always post it on the Facebook page every week. So take a listen. Let us know what you think. Uh, and we will talk to you again next week. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, the plan to give Albuquerque voters campaign spending vouchers. This will not assist that heroic individual figure uh, that they portray. It sort of levels the playing field between these, corporate, uh, these corporately funded candidates. And the final high school assessment test for New Mexico students will also be a college entrance exam. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Considering the national trends, we shouldn't be surprised that UNM faculty recently voted for unionization. Now, most unionized workers in New Mexico are primarily public employees. How does the UNM vote impact the landscape? The line digs in. A number of Democrats are not seeking re-election in our state house, and the progressive wing of the state Senate is seemingly losing patience with the more conservative end of the party. We'll work through the stakes. Now, when President Trump visited New Mexico in September, he made a point of trying to woo Hispanic voters. We'll hear from the national president of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. But first, the line in the new standard for assessing New Mexico students. Out with the park, in with the SAT. Education Secretary Ryan Stewart made the announcement that New Mexico schools will use the college entrance exam as the state's high school assessment. The secretary says the assessment task force wanted a more useful measure of high school performance, and the SAT fits the bill. Is it, right, is it the right call? Joining us this week to offer their opinion on this and a pair of other topics, attorney and line regular Sophie Martin is here with her take on today's topics. We welcome longtime friend of the show, Martha Burke, political psychologist and author of the book, Your Voice, Your, Voice, Your Vote. And we'll talk about that book here in a quick second, too. Another regular former state senator is with us, Diane Snyder. Thank you, Diane, for being here. And Kathy McGill is back. She's the founder and director of the New Mexico Black Leadership Council. Now, so if you're familiar with the SAT, certainly. Indeed college, I am. Yes, Indeed college, I am. everyone starts getting a little heebie-jeebies just even at the name. It's interesting. Uh -huh. uh, the exams are, aren't without controversy. And was the administration so anxious to get away from Park? that they jumped at the first reasonable chance here? Is, is that your sense Well, I mean, I certainly the, the administration up in Santa Fe was very eager to get away from Park. I mean, that was part of what right. Governor Luan Grisham uh, campaigned on. Mm. So there was no doubt that Park was going to go away. Mm -hmm. There was a committee that the state put together to look at alternatives, and they did look at both the ACT and the SAT. Right. But, I mean, to say that to say <clears throat> the state was necessarily hasty in choosing the SAT, mm -hmm. I think it's worth pointing out that we're not the first state Good to point. identify the SAT as a, an option for that sort of not quite exit test, but that, that junior year um, exam. Mm -hmm. There are 20 states now that are, at, mm -hmm. at least at the moment, as far as I know, that are um, that are going to be working with the SAT. And the SAT itself has been making changes. The, the test that you see now is new as of 2016. Mm -hmm. It's been making changes. The College Board has been trying to make it closer to, um, to, to reflect better both what's being taught in high schools, but then also what colleges are saying they mm -hmm. want to see in mm -hmm. the high school curriculum. And mm -hmm. so that there's, there's some sort of push and pull that's happening there. As the test evolves, it's, it's, there's always an attempt in high stakes testing to increase what we call the validity of the exam. Is it testing what it needs to be testing? Right. And in many ways, I think that's the big question for, for New Mexico. Um, given our educational standards, given the federal standards that we need to deal with, is the SAT the most appropriate in terms of what it's 
it's testing, how it's testing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and without a great deal of additional information, it's, today it's hard to say. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly the College Board is saying that they are tying the test to state and federal standards and they believe that they more than meet those standards mm -hmm. with their exam. Mm -hmm. You know, Diane, when you think about it, Senator, they, in effect, will be paying for this. Not in effect, they will be paying for right. this test. The goal here is to perhaps lessen a barrier to college. What's so bad about that? That seems like a reasonable way to go. I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think you could do the same thing had they chosen to go with the ACT instead of the SAT. Right. It, the funding could, could have been put in. Uh, I noticed also in the course of some of the discussion I read is they are also looking at funding covering the PSAT, right. which is earlier on in your high school career. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's, I, I'm fine with that. Only concern I have is always, as you know, we're a boom-bust cycle. What happens when we're in the bust part? Does this go away? Yeah, is this yeah. something? Um, I don't Do you know. Do have a concern? That the, the well, I, I think anytime you put something new in place, okay. it's because it, uh, some states are paying for it. Most places don't. Right. When I grew up, we didn't. The one thing that it, it, I found that it was interesting about is the SAT has the different segments and you have once you've taken the full test mm. if you've done poorly say in math you can go back and take the math segment again now you have to pay a fee for it right. uh, and I believe we're paying for that also I think, I think that's the ACT, ACT. That's I'm right. sorry you're right, right. I am right. But, but so we could have gone with that those are some of the differences right. um, the SAT let me get on right track here is they're talking about dropping their adversity Score. scoring segment, mm -hmm. right. that a hardship, the neighborhood environment, what That's children right. are experiencing. And it looks, from what I read, as they put it in place, a few schools took the opportunity to do it, and then now SAT is dropping out of it. The, the main thing I found in all this discussion that, that was astounding to me is, holy whatever, some word, Camoli, is the business of the college oh, yeah. board yeah, yeah. and the money. Why are we even having students having to pay for this at all? Right. I mean, Legitimate this question. is, yeah. I mean, $900,000 a year salary for the top person and then three around 300000 for most of their executive yep. people. Yep. And I'm just going... And it's a, what did I read? It's like some X million dollars budget, right. a business a year. Yep. So that, I, profit, that right. I mean, that's, that doesn't impact us so much in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. But if we really want to help kids and the state, then the college board ought to ease back a little yeah. bit on the cost. Interesting point there. Uh, Kathy, the senator just brought up the adversity score. It's kind of an interesting thing. It is. It's made up of an average of two ratings between one and a hundred, one for the student's school environment and the other for the student's neighborhood environment that indicate the obstacles a student might have overcome, like crime and poverty and things like that. Makes sense. Makes sense. But how one administers that is, is a difficulty, isn't it? That's a tough one. I think it is a tough one. Mm -hmm. and it's proven to be a tough one. You know, and as they've tried to uh, compete against each other because the SAT right. and the ACT are in competition mm -hmm. for who's going to get all that money. Um, you know, they've been looking for ways to sort of level the playing field and truthfully they're both about the same um, at this point. And so mm -hmm. I really think that assessment is a choice. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't um, matter what we use and i like us to get back to some reasonable discussion about what our main goal is. Like what are we trying to do? Mm -hmm. We're trying to make sure that our students are literate and that they have numeracy. Mm -hmm. um, and these scores, you know, using the SAT or the ACT or whatever we decide to call it, whatever we decide to do is not necessarily going to get right. us to that goal. But is that is that context important? Do you find college admissions folks that they should be more attuned to these situations for these kind of scores, even not having it officially part of the SAT? Should they just naturally be understanding about environment and how one educates oneself and neighborhoods, families, all that kind of thing? I'm going to say no. Okay. Um, you know, because I'm not a, an opponent of Common Core because it really is uh, meant to say that we want students to have critical reading skills and right. to be able to comprehend what they read. And so if we 
get to where we need to be in terms of leveling the playing field mm -hmm. so that a school in the Southeast Heights in Albuquerque is the same as a school in the Northeast Heights, mm -hmm. then I think they should be able to follow the same standards. Mm. That's a big it, it, That's the single score argument, and Kathy wouldn't be alone on that. Does that work for you and your gut? Yes and no. Okay. Uh, because let's not forget that not every student can or wants to go to college. Fair now, enough. I am totally for Common Core mm -hmm. because I think that that's a good standard to have. Mm -hmm. But all this emphasis on every kid going to college can be detrimental to some kids uh, because they either know they can't go, they don't want to go, maybe there's a vocation that they love mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they would like to be in. So I think we're losing a little bit of emphasis on some of those kids right. that are not college bound, right. so to speak. Right. How does this decision fit into that? This idea that go, well, well it, odd because way to it's it. a some kids are going right exactly readiness test. Exactly. I mean, by definition, it's yeah. it's aimed at a certain cohort, which yeah. we hope many many of our kids will go. But if they don't, they can still have a meaningful, productive life that contributes to society and right. I, I just don't want us to lose sight of that. Absolutely. It's good it's good good can I just say that, that in there. Sure. I think that all of this is about expectations of our students at the beginning of their educational career. Mm -hmm. Like, how are we teaching them? You know, do they understand how to read? Do they comprehend what they read? Do they have 21st century skills? Mm -hmm. And certainly, there are a lot of students, like, I can't even tell you how much money I just paid to a plumber. So, you know, we want, you know, them to go into some vocations, right. into trades and things like that, but we want them to be literate mm -hmm. yes, and to have do. numeracy, and that's mm -hmm. what we're really looking for. Good well, point there. They they need, they need, to be a plumber, you need math skills, right. you need reading skills, you need, uh, communication is the area that always amazes me that we don't teach more of, right. is how to talk to people, right. how yes. to be successful in your life. But that's, that's right. where Common Core comes in right. as opposed to all, all the emphasis being on getting in college. Mm -hmm. 21st century skills. It's also, mm -hmm. it's true though that as the, as the SAT has changed, and I, I think this is in part a reflection of what we see on the ACT as well, um, is that there has been a movement away from just math for math's sake, mm -hmm. exactly. which, which ideally is the case in our educational systems too, although we're not quite there, and toward the skills data analysis, mm -hmm. things that mm -hmm. things that a, a plumber Plug actually uses. does yeah. need to use, mm -hmm. that business people need to use, um, and uh, that there is this sense now um, that we need to be thinking more strategically about what we teach because for a long time, especially in math, we were teaching things that kids didn't necessarily ever mm -hmm. get to use in their That's adult right. lives. That's right. I mean, it's, I don't think it's, it, I think it's about the approach, you know, and not necessarily about the assessment. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to get to this moonshot, this transformation that we've been talking about, I'm not sure that all this conversation we're having about assessments is the first place that we should be going Interesting. to. Interesting. Just to wrap this up, Martha, you're, are you in support of this idea to move away from ACT and go to SAT for our state? Does it make sense to you? Well, it from park, yes, sorry. it does. Mm -hmm. And yeah. something I did not know until we got this topic mm -hmm. was that New Mexico, New Jersey, and D.C. were the last three to dump park. Right. And so it, it, I read something, I wish it was original with me, but that Martinez was obsessed with testing over teaching. Right. And that's another thing we haven't talked about where the, it was used so much for the teacher evaluations. Right. And punitively. That's right. And, that's and right. punitively yes. so, that's right. yes. Interesting point there. Out of time, this group will be back in a few minutes to talk about the decision by UNM faculty to unionize and to answer the broader question of whether organized labor is having a moment. I think it's worth noting, conflict in a union context is not a sign of failure. No. Let's remember that, that when people advocate for their rights, they don't do it and the other side just rolls over. Right. It, there's no, going to be strife. The way. That's there's right. going to be strife here, and we should <laughs> yeah. not view that as a failure of the union system. Right. Voting has begun in local elections around the state, and here in Albuquerque, voters will see two proposed changes to the city's public campaign finance program. One of them is a voucher plan the city calls democracy dollars, in which voters would get $25 to assign to the publicly financed mayoral candidate of their choice. It's a fractious proposal here to discuss separately its pros and cons are advocate Eric Griego of the New Mexico Working Families Party and Pat Rogers, a local attorney and conservative advocate. 
Before he was state director of the New Mexico Working Families Party, Eric Griego was a city councilor from Albuquerque, um, one of the first people to introduce Albuquerque to public financing. Democracy dollars is a, is a different way at what sounds like the same thing. What is democracy dollars or what are democracy dollars designed to do? So there's three basic things we think um, this will correct. First is we have, we have a public financing system since 2005, which the voters overwhelmingly passed, almost 70% of voters, um, which essentially said if you're a candidate and you opt out of taking any private contributions from big corporate entities or other special interests that you get a dollar a voter to run your campaign, to, you know, to get signs up and mail out and now digital because that's part of the, running a campaign. Um, that passed in 2005. In 2009, three, uh, three, all three candidates for mayors used that system. And, uh, but then in 2011, the same court that passed to Citizens United that said you know, corporations could spend unlimited amounts um, also struck down the matching provision of our system in 2005, which meant that publicly financed candidates were at a huge disadvantage toward private, privately funded candidates. I mean, you could raise a million dollars as a private mayoral candidate, and you'd only get about a third of that as a publicly financed candidate. It puts you at a huge disadvantage. The first thing democracy dollars will do is to try to level that playing field a little bit by giving Albuquerque residents and voters these $25 coupons to give to the publicly financed candidate of their choice for mayor and for city council um, so that they can run their campaigns and do all the things you have to do to be competitive, right? To you know, mail to people and so on. Um, so the first thing it does is it sort of levels the playing field between these, corporate, uh, these corporately funded candidates. The second thing it does is it allows voters, we have such low voter turnout, to actually have a stake in the elections. Right now there's about 400 people who give most of the money in our, in our local elections, the last election we have. And they tend to give it in big amounts and they tend to control the agenda and, and they get to control who runs the city, right? This would, this would increase that class of folks who really participate by giving a small amount of money to say, yeah, I support you and I'm what you're talking about. And uh, if you reject private money, then I'll give you this $25 coupon so that you can, you know, buy signs or mailers or do whatever you need to do to be competitive with your privately financed opponent. So the second thing it does is it allows voters to sort of participate, not just by voting, but by being more active in a campaign. And the third thing it does is it, is it, is it invites people who have been totally sort of disinvested, disenchanted with our politics to, to think about actually running, whether or not they're rich or have a huge network or have a huge name ID. It actually becomes viable now for more people who haven't been interested in politics to actually run because they could uh, work hard. They don't have to take a bunch of corporate money. They can actually go out and hit doors and ask people, hey, I want to do this. Will you support me? I'm a publicly financed candidate. And they can actually have enough to be competitive with the, the privately funded candidates that we currently have in our elections. It's a, a $25 voucher. Um, it's not just registered voters who would have access to this? Explain that to me. So we, we use the word residents, and the council gets to decide ultimately what we mean. Um, what Seattle did, which is the, the, the model that we're using, is they use the federally recognized donor leg uh, language. So that means anybody who could give in a congressional race, a U.S. Senate race, a U.S. presidential race, would be eligible under the Seattle system. Our rules haven't actually been written, so we could, we could make it uh, that, and I'm hoping that we're as inclusive as possible, meaning if you, whether or not you're registered to vote, but you're eligible to vote, you should be able to do it. Whether or not you've participated by voting or not, you should still be eligible if you're a resident of, of, of Albuquerque, you sh should still be eligible. So that's to be determined by city council. And I have a lot of confidence that they're gonna do the right thing. We have a pretty competent city clerk, and I don't think uh, you know all these sort of scare tactics, there's something nefarious is going on. I think we're gonna decide as a community what's a reasonable number of people and who should be able to use the system, right? Okay. Um there have been problems with campaign finance in the past. I mean, our most recent mayoral election, there were issues with in-kind donations mm -hmm. um, and, and what other organizations can run alongside a publicly financed campaign. Um, the other side uh, often says, why not just fix those problems and then go forward from there? Um, actually, they haven't said that. The other side has said, the, the, the other side, uh, the folks who have been most out front on this, the folks I'm sure you're one of whom is going to be on your show, is, uh, is have said that they don't want, they don't like any of this. They don't like any of the system. They think that Citizens United corporate contributions should, should reign, that we shouldn't be having publicly financed candidates, um, that in fact corporate money, unlimited, and, and money is speech, and corporations are people. We don't believe that. We believe that average residents and voters should have as much of a say as possible in their elections. So uh, the, the Proposition 2, which is democracy dollars, 
doesn't address any of this. There's another proposition that tries to fix some of that, and I think it does a good job. We're supporting it, but that's not what democracy dollars does. It, uh, democracy dollars really gets to, to, to in increasing those who participate, making those campaigns more viable. So um, I, actually I actually think it's not an issue of tweaking this. I think the, the folks who are against this are very happy with the status quo with about 400 people in Albuquerque determining, determining who, who runs the city. And um, they mostly, uh, one out of four dollars spent in, in private camp campaigns it comes from real estate and development industry. So it's the folks who have a direct interest in how the city grows, how the city's run, and who gets the contracts, who've really been the dominant force in funding our elections. We're trying to change that. And Democracy Dollars is really about bringing people to the table to support candidates and make them more viable. I've heard them say that it's going to cost more to administrate. If you get a buck, it'll cost a buck to administrate it. Push back against that. That hasn't been the case. To. All I can say, I was, the, as you mentioned, I was the sponsor of the original legislation in 2005. That hasn't been the case. We have a fund now that's completely solvent and has never been insolvent. It's, it's getting north of three million now, and it's been in, it's been around for 14 years now, and it's still heavily in the surplus. Um, we've had very competent people running that uh, that fund. We can always use more transparency, more accountability, and we're all for that. We want this, this is taxpayer money. We want it to be run, uh, run and administered as, as transparently as possible. But for those who say that somehow this is going to uh, be depleted or it's going to spend all our money, what they're really saying is the current corporate-dominated, unlimited uh, sort of corporate power is the way we should run our elections. And for all the community groups that are behind this, we're saying there's another way to do this. It's much more dem democratic, much more inclusive and will increase voter turnout, and it'll change the people who run. It won't be the same old sort of powerful people who can run. We'll, hopefully we'll see some, some younger people, some people of color, more women, more people who haven't been as active in politics think about, hey, this is something I can do. I don't have to be a millionaire, and I don't have to have a bunch of rich friends to do this. I can actually run for office and make a, uh, a contribution as an elected official. We only have about 30 seconds left here, but um, one of the provisions would give the city council leeway in sort of administering this program. Why give them that instead of taking it back to voters if something doesn't work? Because they're the governing body of the city, and so you, you create a system and, and you elect them in elections uh, to, to, to make sure the rules reflect what their constituents want. And by the way, if those folks are elected using public, public financing, they're much more likely to reflect the community interest than to reflect what the development community wants or the real estate community wants, right? They're going to really reflect what their constituents want. And I think they're going to do the right thing if we solve this imbalance between all these really powerful special interests funding our campaigns versus average people like you and me trying to trying to affect who elect, who, get, who gets elected in Albuquerque. Eric Griego, thanks for coming in. Uh, the website that you and other advocates have set up is what? Um, you can go to burgebucks.org. Okay. That's, that's a great website. You can find out all you need to know there. Or the city clerk's website at cabq.gov. Great. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. Pat Rogers is a local attorney and speaking with us on the other side of the democracy dollars um, debate. Uh, Pat, thanks for coming in, first of all. Um, the goal, as expounded by the proponents, is to increase participation, and that is both in terms of uh, turnout, voter turnout, and the number of candidates running. They say it'll bring a different sort of person um, to, the, to the race. Um, what do you see that... Um, either doesn't ring true in that or is problematic about that? Well, I, I think uh, ideas uh, should be judged on results, uh, not on intentions or not on feelings. And what has been established in the Seattle experience is that this isn't bringing new or different people to the, uh, to the race. This is rewarding people who are already incumbents, already organized, and have the ability to command armies of people to harvest these democracy dollars. This will not assist that heroic individual figure uh, that they portray. Um, the city of Seattle has studied its own plan, and granted they only have one election. They're in the midst of their second one um, right now. Um, it, but it does look like their uh, 2017, they had 15 candidates. Um, 2019, they have 72. I mean, that, that seems to be a pretty marked increase there. And again, it's the results and not the intentions. What the Seattle Times reported was exactly that, um, that result, and that is only the people who are organized and capable of sending out people to harvest these vouchers 
are advantaged by this. The people who are not are ultimately disadvantaged. So you may get more candidates, but it's the people who are backed by the existing organizations, the same organizations that have pushed this from the beginning, the same organizations that will be empowered by this. They will be selecting the candidates that effectively have a chance in the race. And you've said elsewhere that, that you feel like this favors those, um, those organizing groups. Um, here in Albuquerque, they tend to be left-leaning groups. Um, is there also not a return to sort of traditional campaigning, to door knocking or, or greeting people outside of, uh, outside of grocery stores, things like that? Uh, absolutely not. I mean, some of the misinformation out there is that the candidates will collect these vouchers. That's not the way it's written. That's not the way it's going to work. This isn't a, a case where candidates are going to be encouraged to go around and gather these vouchers. It will be done by these existing entities, Progress Now, Olay, unions, working families, and the entities that already have staff. They're already in the field now. They have spent, as of October 18th, they have spent $450,000. They've reported that much. I think it's actually more than that. This is through campaign finance reports here. That's right. Okay. The public reports for starting in 2018 on democracy dollars to get big money out of politics, they have spent $450,000 with the most intense three weeks to go. Okay, okay. Um, campaigns, though, are aren't they set up to do the same thing? You know, you talk about sort of the importance of a ground game for, for a mayoral race or something like that. Wouldn't, wouldn't those um, entities be able to um, gather signatures um, on, you know, they, I, I should say they do it for um, publicly financed candidates when you, have to, when you have to qualify. They're able to do that. I mean, is there some sort of high bar here that would prevent a candidate from, from gathering democracy vouchers? Um, initially, it's going to be an incredible incentive uh, for people, and that's why the cost is going to skyrocket. The cost of this is going to bust the budget significantly and going to cause a tremendous amount of tax dollars to go to fund speech that people may not agree with. In other words, why should your tax dollars go to fund speech that you don't believe in? And that's what's going to occur here. And it's going to be an incredible amount of money, far beyond anything that's existing or budgeted. Uh, you know, I mentioned those numbers uh, about candidates running. Um, the Seattle Times has, and, and the city of Seattle is also looking at, you know, at this point in the election cycle, they, um, there's outside money actually coming in as well to sort of meet um, the democracy vouchers. Is that the sort of thing? They're looking at $3.7 million in outside money versus $2 million at, this is at their last check, in democracy vouchers. So that's the kind of thing that, that you're talking about? Well, probably uh, times of, of doubling that or tripling that money. The way this is set up, Albuquerque is much more generous than Seattle. I mean, our existing public financing is already wasting an incredible amount of money. And the two propositions are going to increase that by 75% right off the bat. Then democracy dollars has the chance to double that. And so you're looking at, I believe, a minimum of $10 million, as much as $18 million in the total cost of this. Because as the Seattle Times reported, it's not just this tremendous amount of money going out the door to candidates, but it's a dollar for dollar in the administrative effort to police this. One of the problems that people ought to be aware of is, is Google Seattle democracy dollars in fraud. This program is going to significantly increase the opportunities for fraud in our system. But doesn't Seattle demand that people give those, they sign those democracy dollars directly to a, a candidate? So, so they have to assign them to a candidate. They can't use intermediaries, or is that not the case? No, they're, they're harvested in Seattle as well. But you look at what happened in 2017, after the last election, under our current public financing, the Albuquerque Journal said maybe it's time to to trash public financing. And they said that because of the fraud that had been established in that election. 
the present fraud with regard to the collection of dollars and how that's done, and the, the, the cheating and the conduct that went on after this occurred. This doesn't limit in any way the private funding. And so the mayor who collected more than $500,000 in that campaign, 2017, is now going to be eligible to get $880,000. And there are no limits on the private money that the independent political or major finance committees collected on his behalf more than a million dollars. So this is going to inject an incredible amount of money into the system, tax dollars, all under the argument that we're going to take big money out of politics. It is Orwellian, as are many of the claims that the advocates are making. Um, we just have about less than a minute left here. Um, I, it is fair to point out that you were the attorney for Wayne Johnson who raised some of those issues against Mayor Keller. Um, but um, you've also expressed concerns about the, the kinds of people who are going to be able to use democracy vouchers or democracy dollars. Um, in Seattle, they're using the, um, the premise that if you're able to donate in a U.S. federal election, you should be able to donate in um, a city election. Uh, is, there, is there an issue with that? Just real quickly, if you could. Yes, there is, um, because they could have restricted it in either the petition or the ordinance that they intend to enact. They could have restricted it to voters or federally eligible people. They did not. If you look at the websites of the entities that are encouraging these things, they say specifically, this is going to Albuquerque residents. That's what they say. They say, don't worry about all these things, we'll fix them later. Okay, I for one am suspicious because the one thing that they do not want to talk about, on top of all these dollars that are guaranteed to go in there, is that it will also prohibit ever reducing those amounts. It has the strangest provision that says it, those amounts can only be increased. So Albuquerque voters are not only injecting an incredible millions of dollars into this system to encourage political speech or people that may not agree with, but they're also agreeing that the city council, the people receiving that money, can increase it, but never decrease it. Pat, we're out of time. We want to keep this close to fair with the two sides in the same amount of time, but we appreciate you coming in. Thank you. Early voting is underway. In many areas, you can still register to vote. Election day is November 5th. You can find out more information about the Democracy Dollars program through the websites Matt discussed with our advocates, as well as on the Albuquerque City Clerk's website. We'll have all those links on our page, NewMexicoInFocus.org. We have been treated to a daily barrage of rhetoric demonizing immigrants, demonizing immigrants from lawful permanent residence to the undocumented, really treating as non-human, subhuman, those who are approaching our border today in the long tradition of immigration to this country. Last week, the faculty at the University of New Mexico voted overwhelmingly in favor of unionization. Once the results are certified, there will be two new bargaining units on UNM campuses, one for regular faculty and one for adjunct faculty. And Martha, unions seem to be having a bit of a moment here with the GM strike in Chicago. Certainly the teacher strike, Chicago teacher strike, I should say, and a number of newspapers unionizing and now UNM. What do you think, why, why do you think that is? What's happening in the greater movement about labor that unions are suddenly having a bit of a moment here? Well, people are not making the money they should be making. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the bottom line. They don't have the bargaining power they have mm -hmm. with a union. And mm -hmm. workers, look at the public schools, how many strikes we've had just in the last year, teachers walking out mm -hmm. because they're on food stamps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is a public service that we should all honor and that's pay right. for. And, and give the kind of benefits. Mm -hmm. uh, at UNM, they hadn't had a, what they say a meaningful raise mm -hmm. in 10 years. Right. And the cost of their benefits is going up. Right. Uh, people, it, it's not only the injustice of it, it's the reality. Mm -hmm. They can't pay their bills. That's right, that's right. Mm -hmm. Kathy, I'm, I'm perhaps not shocked. The adjunct professor crew voted 90% <laughs> and above for this. 90% voted yes. I'm amazed yes. it was as low as 90%. Right, right. You know, what we know about adjunct professors, right. Um, but I think that, you know, uh, they qualify for public assistance. Yes. Um, if 
and, and they and they spent their careers working on education, and we're saying that we value education, and we don't pay them, so they couldn't wait to get there to vote for it. Mm -hmm. It's only the first hurdle, right? You know, there's going right. to be yeah, many there'll more. Be more. Right. There'll be many more because. You know, what I predict, and you heard it here first, is that there will be probably some tension between the the full-time faculty and the adjunct faculty about what gets negotiated in their contract. Right. So. That could be, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. 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 They, but there will be two separate entities sort of governing both those bodies, right? There, the adjunct folks and the... There will be. Uh -huh. There will be. And, and I'm, that's consistent, frankly, with how the university treats those two groups. Okay. Um, across the country, there has been a movement at universities to hire more adjuncts because they don't have as many rights within the employment mm -hmm. context at the university. They don't have access to tenure. They don't have um, as, as reliable schedules and, and mm -hmm. pay and things like that. They're paid quite a bit less. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yes, I think that there will be different priorities between those two unions. Mm -hmm. And as the negotiations, I, I think that was a, a very perceptive point, as negotiations go forward, mm -hmm. um, we're gonna see that play out. But I think it's worth noting conflict in a union context is not a sign of failure. No. Let's remember that that when people advocate for their rights, they don't do it and the other side just rolls over. Right. It, there's no. going right. to be strife. That's the American way. That's there's right. going to be strife here and we should <laughs> yeah. not view that as a failure of the union system. Right. Interesting well, point it, there. it is Please. interesting that the provost wrote this long email that right. he sent to everyone and he's advocating for peer review. Mm -hmm. That's basically the tenure system. Yep. Uh, I have been married to a professor for 35 years and believe me, he can tell you that if in the peer review system, mm -hmm. if the peers want you to have tenure, they're going to find a way to give it to you and if they don't, you're they're right. going to find a way not to give That's it to you. Oh. And it's very, very subjective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The adjunct thing is different. Ellen Bernstein said, and you alluded to it, alluded to it that 25% of the adjuncts are on public assistance. Well, you know what? We know that Walmart coaches some of its employees uh, on how to get on food stamps. Do we want UNM to be the Walmart of academia? You know, right. I mean, she wins. Right. It's a, you know, Diane. It's interesting. We we're not a big union state outside yeah. of public employees and you know certainly the film business, local four eighty. You yeah. know, all that kind of thing. We're not a huge union state, so I'm just kind of curious if this is going to have some kind of domino effect or, or, or just kind of change the landscape here in New Mexico about how we view unions. Any possibility there? I, maybe, but yeah. I, don't, I don't see that. Okay. Because you still got all your rural areas. Uh -huh. uh, I, it, I, I, it's like, okay, UNM has unionized. Right. What about tech or state? Sure. Mm -hmm. People, I mean, I think are northern New Mexico, uh, right. high well, let me yeah. ask you this. On that note, the campuses, the UNM campuses in Gallup and other places are going to be part of this unionization mm -hmm. as yes, well. Yes, they are. UNM you know? is a huge employer in New right. Mexico. That's right. It's one of our biggest employers. That's so right. That but is worth noting. That right. will increase the numbers of, of employees who are union members. Right. But I don't, I don't see anything else. I mean, right. we are, where, where else would we go we, it, now that we have it in edge? Higher education, right. because we've got we've got it in manufacturing, we've got it in uh, mo uh, movies, uh, telecommunications mm -hmm. is an opportunity, mm -hmm. but I don't I don't see it, it being this. Everybody's going to rush out well, to create. Well, we've got union. coal miners out there that are unionized. We've, we've got railroad workers. We've got, but you, but you know, you've got, got a movement. That, you know, again, back to the WalMarts of the world, right. and there are many, not just Walmart itself. For low-wage workers, uh, there have been movements to try to get those, you know, uh, fight for 15 is mm -hmm. one of them, mm -hmm. right. uh, to try to get them unionized. I, I do right. want to mention one more thing, sure. though, in this context, because about seven or eight years ago, the United States Justice Department found that UNM was engaging in gender uh, pay discrimination. Mm -hmm. And I worked with some of the women, there were eight or nine of them that um, were complaining about it. The Justice Department ruled in their favor. However, the Justice Department said, we're not going to prosecute this, and here's why. Only one of the eight or nine women 
was willing to put her name on the line on a lawsuit. In other words, they could not get a class action gotcha. together yeah. because the other women were afraid. Right. And I am thinking if they had had a union, that would have been a very different outcome. Right. It's, the other point that concern, mm -hmm. concerns me about doing this is the legislature still does the appropriation of funding to mm -hmm. the University of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And if you have a labor union, just like it does to uh, the public, uh, public schools, mm -hmm. is if you have a union that's negotiated, and maybe rightly so, certainly if it's been 10 years since they had a meaningful raise, but then their meaningful raise, may, their raises may have been the same raises that state employees and, and public school teachers have been getting. That's right. But if the union is successful at negotiating a significant raise, mm -hmm. then where's the money coming from? Okay. Because the legislature is still going to give what it wants to give to the university. And then the money has to come from someplace. Oh, I and have I, a place. I have, I have a place. The, the football coach is making $422,000 a year. That's 10. We've had, we've had basketball that's coaches 10 north pretty of good right. jobs right, right there that are way above the poverty line. Right. If right. we got rid of football altogether, not just the coach, Buddy, that would pay for a lot of it. And I think that what, you know, what the faculty and, um, is saying is that now with the collective bargaining unit, the university is going to have to open up its books and say, where is your priority? Because we know that your budget document and how you mm -hmm. pay people is how you value them. Mm -hmm. So they want to find out who do you value more than you value us. Mm -hmm. And so now with the collective bargaining Point. unit, they, they yeah. have to they have to pony up with some information. That's right. I'm curious, Sophie, if this affects the right to work um, movement. The so-called right, right to right. work. So called, thank you. So yes. called right to work. Does this have any impact on, on? Well, I mean, it is, I think, directly counter to the yeah. idea that I can fire you at any time. Right. And, you know, I mean, it provides protections. It's interesting because New Mexico really has not, until relatively recently, has not seen the kind of recovery from the recession, has not seen mm -hmm. the right. incredible decrease in unemployment rates, although when you pick those numbers apart, they're not quite as good as they look. Mm -hmm. um, but as it, it's a, such an interesting phenomenon to me that as it seems New Mexico workers are, are developing just a little bit more market power, mm -hmm. now they're able to say... But, but the legislature had to step in and pass a law saying that you can't do right to work individually in counties uh -huh. or in right. communities. Right. Right. Well, uh, that's taking away the right of the county and the city. Why should it, why did, should it, it yeah. have to all be the same? We don't do that for a lot of other different subjects. We're going to allow flexibility, or at least the recommendations. Although we do do it for a lot of different subjects, not well, just here. We have the same the laws, right. and, and but you know but, you can't but murder somebody in one county. It was progressing so exactly. You have finish. It was progressing so fast and so importantly and so widespread that the Democratic legislature and governor had to pass a law saying you couldn't do it. Mm. I think they were, what, there were 10 counties or something that had right to work or that were trying to pass it. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, I do think that there has to be some consistency and um, that we, we do have a situation where people still get to choose. You don't have to be a part of the union. You don't it's have not to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's see how this goes down because now the real fun begins, that negotiation <laughs> about right. what pay is right. going to be. These sometimes could be protracted, long-fought battles, so we'll see what happens. Labor battles are always fascinating. Out of time there on Unions for Now. We'll be back in a bit to talk about the Democratic Party in the state legislature. Very simply, I think mm -hmm. they want to replicate what they did in 2018 okay. in the House, taking over, I believe it was eight seats, seven or eight seats mm -hmm. they gained in the House, and, and a couple of them were from Republican heaven. When President Trump came to New Mexico in September, he declared the all-blue state in play for the 2020 election. The president was especially keen to attract Hispanic voters to his cause. Now that rang hollow to the president of the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Thomas Sines, as general counsel for MALDEF. Sines is familiar with New Mexico. Our full interview airs in a couple of weeks, but in this segment, he speaks with correspondent Russell Contreras about that likelihood of President Trump making inroads in the Hispanic electorate. Tom, thanks for joining us. Um, recently, President Donald Trump came to New Mexico and he reiterated his thoughts that he wanted to 
capture the Latino vote this time or capture New Mexico, what are Donald uh, Trump's chances of making inroads with Latino voters? Without a dramatic turnaround in the policies and perspective of this administration, including its dangerous rhetoric, I think he has no chance of getting the Latino vote in New Mexico or elsewhere in the country. This is the most anti-Latino, Latino-phobic administration in our history. His actions, his appointments demonstrate ongoing hostility toward our community and, by extension, ongoing hostility toward our most Latino estates here in New Mexico. So I think his chances are, are very low of getting the Latino vote. He said the same thing last time, and we saw the results, an overwhelming vote against him in the Latino community. This is a dramatic change from 2000 when, when then Texas Governor George Bush um, was seeking to make inroads in Latino communities and did, of capturing around 40% of the vote. Um, what has changed? What changed from that time to here? Well, the rhetoric has changed and the policies have changed. And George W. Bush had a perspective in support of immigration reform and support of recognizing the contributions of undocumented immigrants who have contributed to our economy and our society without the protections of the law and wanted to address that issue. Donald Trump has no interest in addressing that issue. Instead, we have been treated to a daily barrage of rhetoric demonizing immigrants, demonizing immigrants from lawful permanent residence to the undocumented, really treating as non-human, subhuman, those who are approaching our border today in the long tradition of immigration to this country and who should be treated as refugees and instead are treated in very subhuman ways by caging children, separating families and the like. We've seen policies like the changes in public charge that are designed to really demean and diminish the capability of immigrants to thrive in this country. So it's, it's a change in the policy and the rhetoric in a very dangerous way and in a very demeaning way for the Latino community. How confident um, do you, are you that this rhetoric could possibly change in the next election? I, I don't see any indication that it's going to change from Donald Trump or those who still are a part of his administration. He retains Stephen Miller, who is a known nativist as a central part of his White House staff. What we've seen is exclusion and really discrimination against the Latino community in every aspect of the administration. Just one example, with the confirmation a few weeks ago of Eugene Scalia, the son of the late conservative Supreme Court Justice, as Labor Secretary, we now have a cabinet in this country that does not include a single Latino or Latina in it. You'd have to go back three decades to find a similar occurrence. And in those three decades, of course, the Latino community has grown to become the largest minority group in the country and were not represented in the cabinet of the United States. That has real impacts, but the symbolism of that is even more troubling. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. Thank you. And again, you can look for that full interview in a couple of weeks. On to our final topic now, as we've grown curious about what's afoot in the Democratic Party. In the House, four Democrats have announced they won't run again. Some of those seats are safely Democratic, but two of them are 2018 blue wave gains that Republicans want back. In the Senate, the list of Democratic senators who have drawn primary opposition is growing as the party's progressive wing flexes its muscles, Diane. In this election, normal cycle news, or do you feel as though there's something deeper going on with Democrats here? I, uh, very simply, I think mm -hmm. they want to replicate what they did in 2018 okay. in the House, taking over, I, I believe it was eight seats, seven or eight seats mm -hmm. they gained in the mm -hmm. House. And, and a couple of them were from Republican heaven. I mean, that you just, the far northeast heights, mm -hmm. I mean, we were astounded. Uh, 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 and not just Republicans, but many Democrats were so astounded that they were able to gain those two seats, mm -hmm. Jimmy Hall's particularly. That's right. So uh, the thing about the four Dems, those four seats you mentioned, yeah. two of those are traditionally Republican seats. Okay. Bill Pratt uh, won, uh, that was Larry Laranaga's seat. Yeah. And so they're accustomed to voting for a conservative, they're mm -hmm. accustomed to doing. So I think it depends on how good the candidate is. Mm -hmm. It was, and how good the Democratic uh, legislator game plan is. Mm -hmm. If they're still using the same game plan, they might be able to hold it with another Democratic candidate. But anytime you have an open seat, it's, it's a greater risk. That's a good distinction. Uh, Jim yeah. Trujillo in Santa Fe, that's a safe Democratic seat. Right. Uh, Joe Sanchez in Alcalde is um, the Four Hills area uh, with Akil, mm -hmm. the, uh, the first uh, uh, Muslim. Mm -hmm. Muslim who mm -hmm. um, 
has ever been elected in New Mexico. That's right. He has, is stepping down, and he hasn't really said why. Right. Family and those yeah, kinds of right. things. Grandchildren. But grandchildren. Yeah. But you kind of go, okay. But anyhow. I've wondered. <laughs> I've wondered. I, That's I, way I, to put it. I, yeah. I, I kind of surprises me. Sure. That is traditionally, I mean, that was Marty Lambert's seat forever and right. ever and right. ever. And then um, took out a first-timer. Uh, Republican. So I think that's very much in play. Now, the primary opponents, mm -hmm. I mean, come on. I, I, think, um, I think Clemente Sanchez is safe. He is a banker. He's, he's been in the community. He's been county uh, commissioner. He's been all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. I think he's safe. Depends, again, on the ground game they put up against him. Mm -hmm. um, John Arthur Smith has had opposition, primary yeah, opposition, that's right. that's and right. been able to pull his off. Right. And he is, he's pretty strong in his district as a person. The other, you want me? That's right, keep on. Just the other quick question, sure. yeah. Uh, Mary Kay yes. Papin mm -hmm. is, I mean, she, she can trade on Senator Papin's name, who is a Democrat. Uh, she's a Democrat, but she's a conservative Democrat. But even se the first Senator Papin, Joe, was, was a conservative mm -hmm. back in the day in the 80s and, and 90s. The races that I think are more interesting go back to that game plan, that ground game. And that's the two Republican seats in the Northeast Heights the that's Democrats right. have filed that's right. candidates against. That's right. uh, Mark Moores. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, of course, is Senator Bill Payne, who's mm -hmm. retired uh, Navy uh, Admiral. The I got I got to sure, swing I'm these guys sorry. in. No, no sweat. I, I, that yeah. recap was perfect. Actually, yeah, to set this up, yeah, yeah. perfect. Uh, interesting. Let's go to the Senate side for a real quick here. Yep. Those folks have had opponents in the past, but something's different in the air this year. Oh, something I can feels, tell you one thing that's uh -huh. very different in the air, and that's that vote on the abortion. Yes. 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 yes, yes, yes. Because it still stings those for a lot of people. folks. I'll just use the word, they double-cross the advocates. Mm -hmm. They had promised they were going to vote to overturn, for our listeners that don't no, know, uh, the 1969 abortion bill that will make abortion completely illegal mm -hmm. in New Mexico if Roe is overturned. And there are over 20 challenges to Roe working their way to the Supreme Court as we speak. So mm -hmm. it's going to be a huge issue in every election next year. But those folks that basically said they would vote to overturn that old law and then they didn't. The advocates are mad. Mm -hmm. They're out there working. Mm -hmm. uh, they're going to be working in these challenges in, in the primaries. Mm -hmm. The party has uh, stayed out of it, uh, appropriately so. Right. Yeah. Uh, but believe me, there's work behind the scenes. Now, they're not all listing abortion at the top of the list That's right. That's right. as to why they are challenging these folks. But right. believe me, it is there and it is strong. And one more thing Please. I will say, all mm -hmm. the challengers to those four seats are female candidates. Oh. Right. And yeah. that is something Except that is... Except Bill Payne's. The primary is, is Dr. Martin Hickey. No, I mean the, the four... No, the, the four Democrats. The right. four okay. Democrats that voted against right. the abortion bill. That's right. It's all, all four challengers are females. Three of those guys are guys, mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's going to play into it, whether it's said out loud or not. That's right. Interesting. That Good. Whether it's said out loud or not, I uh -huh. think that's the issue. I see. And, you know, people are very angry about that. Mm -hmm. It should have passed, and, and as Martha said, they promised that they were going to vote for it. Is it enough to flip a decide. Senate seat, though? Uh, I mean, you know, on its own, I don't think it is. It's not the only issue. Yeah. You know, there sure. was, you know, uh, legalizing uh, cannabis in our state okay. is another issue, and, and what was going on with early childhood, early childhood uh, development. Week, yeah. You know, so that was also that education um, issue. So there's, there's more than one issue. Issue. Mm -hmm. And so what I will say is that it is up to the voters. Mm -hmm. It is also going to be up to the ground game um, of their opponents to say, you know, who do we want? And if the Democrats in those districts say, mm -hmm. we don't like that you did it either, right. then they're going to be gone. However, there is pushback from some of those sitting senators that said, Democrats that said, look, I'm voting what my constituents wanted me to do on yes. this abortion thing. Right. Yes. Yes. But, do you know yes. what I mean? I do, so, I do know. They're <laughs> citing that there's, what's his name, uh, Sanchez. Yes. He said it's a rural district. So what? 
women in rural parts of the state have unintended pregnancies. They have risky pregnancies. They have reproductive rights. Thank you. There's another dynamic here, which is, um, although there's still a great deal of uncertainty, I think, and concern in the Democratic Party about what's going to happen with the presidency, Mm. there is also hope that that 2018 will be reproduced, that Democrats down the line will get voted in. If you have an opportunity now to put a more progressive Democrat into some of those some of those districts that have voted Democrat but for conservative Democrats, mm-hmm. now is the time because mm-hmm. they may be able to get in. Yes, a district may have traditionally voted Republican, but we've seen this in Albuquerque districts, mm-hmm. um, places that we have thought about as Republican. Suddenly, Democratic voters turn out. Mm-hmm. It's not that it's not just who lives there; it's who shows up to vote. And mm-hmm. I think there's a real hope in the Democratic Party that this election, the 2020 election, will be a sweep, a wave, oh, yes, right, a wave right. or a sweep and election, to put it. and that we'll get passed with a That's Democratic right. governor. Right. In a Democratic legislature, they'll be able to push past Papin, they'll be able to push past John Arthur Smith and get some priorities, like Catherine was talking about, get some priorities taken care of that should be able to get through a Democratic legislature. Right. I'm curious, Senator, what constitutes a palatable, more progressive Democrat in places like Silver and... Deming and Las Cruces. Do you know what I mean? Is there such a is there such a person? No, there isn't. Okay. Uh, there isn't. I mean, it would be an absolute phenomenon if if they take over those seats. A true progressive. And so far, we haven't had enough information to know whether the candidates they have running are very liberal progressive or whether they are moderate progressives. Right. Because you're still any time you have had turnovers, it's still been a moderate version in that district. Right. It, it, just like the Senate district I represented, very flexible, mm-hmm. ed, uh, uh, more Democrat reg, Democratic registrations than, than Republican, mm-hmm. but you still had to have moderate Democrats taking over the district. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like those issues are important, but but the people in Silver City, it's more important whether uh, Freeport McMoran is working and, and producing right. copper <laughs> than it is whether my wife has to go to Albuquerque to get an abortion. Right. So it's just, it's a truly different kind of phenomena mm-hmm. in those rural areas. Mm-hmm. We'll have to watch how that plays. That's going to have to do it for this week, unfortunately. The news has been coming fast and furious. I appreciate all you women being here today, by the way. It's been a great Thanks. table. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, I like this. I like My this. pleasure. Are, My pleasure, ladies. We are. And then we have to do a group. <laughs> right. Oh, yay. Kumbaya. 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 Right. <laughs> See you again. We'll adopt you as a lady today. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico and Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.